This podcast was brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. How much do we really know about our scientists? What goes on inside of those brilliant minds? To solve this enigma, I interviewed lung experts from around the world to hear about their research, but also to find out what inspired them to dedicate their lives to advancing human health. So let's ask the scientists. In today's episode, our special guest is Dr. Anne Hilgendorf, who is joining me from Munich. I had the great pleasure of meeting Anne at last year's European Respiratory Society's annual congress in Madrid. Anne is the director of the Center for Comprehensive Developmental Care at the Social Pediatric Center and the Dr. von Hauner Children's Hospital, University Hospital of the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Anne is also the head of the Translational Research Group titled Mechanisms of Neonatal Chronic Lung Disease at the Institute of Lung Biology and Disease at the Comprehensive Pneumology Center Helmholtz Zentrum Munichen. Anne's group specialized in experimental and clinical studies investigating molecular mechanisms in neonatal chronic lung disease and beyond. In part one of this podcast, we will get the latest details of the respiratory research being conducted in Anne's group. And in part two of this podcast, we will get some great insight into Anne's career and she provides very helpful guidance for future scientists. Make sure to check out both parts of this episode. Welcome to the show, Anne. Hi, good morning. At least good morning in Germany. <laughs> I'm interested to know how you became involved in neonatal lung research. That is a question that I have been asked many times. And every time I think back and uh, try to think of the point where I actually decided, it becomes clear to me that there was not uh, this very specific point where I decided, well, this is what I'm going to do. It was more a way of uh, getting more and more interested in the clinical care of uh, preterm and term neonates that were suffering specific complications, the challenges that the preterm infant faces um, are very diverse. So there's many uh, areas of interest that you could dive into um, when you dedicate uh, your work um, to better the life uh, or the start into life, I should say, for the preterm infant. So um, I guess that my decision was made again because I had a very great role model. Professor Gardner was actually uh, the one who did the first of the surfactant studies in Germany and he trained me in clinical uh, neonatology. And so that was an inspiration, um, but I fell in love with the beauty of the lung, I have to say, because if you uh, start to touch base with different organs and how they function, I do believe that every organ has its beauty and, and there's all these interesting things that you can, uh, that you can investigate there. And I believe as well that uh, concepts made in one organ can as well, at least in part, be translated to other organs, and they should. But the organ, uh, well, it's like a first love. You never, you know, you never forget. And uh, I realized that the lung was such an interesting organ where so many pathways are interconnected. And it's facing this 
absolute challenge at the beginning of life when it's so structurally and functionally um, well immature and uh, very barely capable of doing the job it's um, supposed to. So then when you support this organ, you don't want to dis uh, destroy the beauty that it holds. And that is the challenge when now the clinician meets that beautiful organ and has to find a very delicate, um, very uh, wise way of how to interact with this organ. And I see research in this area of how we do things wrong and then chronic disease arises I see that research is, is at the interface of the clinician meeting that organ. And I think this is how I really got interested in doing that better. And by doing research in that area, um, trying to uh, make the communication between the clinician and the organ easier and, uh, and find vocabulary and find ways and bridges of how to translate um, language, so to say, because I do think that the lung tells you a story. It's just that you have to try to understand what that story is. And this is where I see, um, see our research in that area. That is, I think, my biggest point of, of uh, decision, if you want to say so, although I always regarded this as uh, being a, a, a question of sliding into it and then you like it and then you stay. This is, uh, this is more what I would describe it with. The other, um, the other point that actually was important to me is that understanding a lung and an organ that is still at the beginning of life and so full of possibilities and um, competencies and uh, hidden gems, so to say, this organ, I think, and, and the understanding of this organ can help us to better things for an adult organ that has maybe forgotten uh, a couple of things or that isn't capable anymore. So to switch regeneration and repair mechanisms back on, I think you have to understand what the neonatal organ is still capable of doing. Based on that, I can see your research group has been established to focus on investigating molecular mechanisms in this neonatal chronic lung disease. And one of your landmark observations was that the lungs of an infant with chronic lung disease show signs of cellular aging, which could be driving the progression of lung damage in these infants when they reach adulthood. Can you tell us first a bit about the concept of molecular pathways of aging? Yeah, that is a very um, interesting uh, question. And I have to undisclose in the beginning that I think we have just started to understand what that means, um, really. And uh, again, always keeping in mind that now we are having uh, uh, or we're looking at an organ that is still developing. So disease happens in the context of development. And I think this is like two roads that intersect uh, every now and then, or, or may, maybe permanently even. And um, so it's not just switching off and fa a factor uh, or switching something back on, and then that will cure um, disease or the onset of disease or prevent disease. Um, I think 
uh, if we're reflecting on aging, then apoptosis, for example, is a, is a good example um, on that. Apoptosis is uh, needed in the developing organ to redefine the structure. If you look at a lung that has a much thicker or you know, seemingly thicker interstitial compartment that then uh, develops into the fine structure of alveoli and the, the capillary and vascular bed, you, uh, you very quickly notice that, that uh, you know, this redefinement of structure has to happen um, because some cells undergo apoptosis. So this directed and, and good, uh, in parentheses, good process of apoptosis is going side by side with the pathology where, of course, apoptosis now happens in cells that shouldn't undergo apoptosis. Um, and, uh, and that are uh, absolutely needed to drive the formation um, uh, of the, the lung structure. So for example, the myofibroblast, that is a, a term that is often used uh, in adult uh, um, lung medicine as being a bad guy because that is the guy driving uh, fibrosis. In the developing lung, it's a good guy, actually, because that is the one driving the next alveolar wall, driving alveolar septation. So if that cell undergoes apoptosis, which, for example, happens um, if you expose the cell to certain levels of oxygen, then that has to be something bad because now that signaling is interrupted, the alveolar wall isn't growing. And then that cell, for example, secretes factors that is uh, even driving the vasculature and the growing vasculature is signaling back um, to those structures and keeping them alive and, uh, and driving them into the next phase. I think with respect to aging, uh, apoptosis does play a role in the, the then uh, resulting non-existence of a certain cell type that is, uh, is needed and thereby the exhaustion of a certain pool of cells that is needed. Um, and I believe that the lung has a pool of these cells to then combat certain things over life where then cells undergo apoptosis. But, you know, guess what? I have a, a second and third and fourth row of those cells that can actually pitch in and, and do things. So early apoptosis um, must actually reflect um, on the process, process that is natural aging because the capacity to, uh, to compensate uh, isn't, uh, you know, fully there. That's number one. Number two, the non-developing structures um, so that you have an emphysematous-like phenotype, although I have to say there's uh, many differences as well with respect to COPD because that occurs in a fully developed lung. Um, and uh, whereas the neonate lung undergoing uh, this, these changes doesn't even have the capacity to fully develop. So there is a difference. I think a big area that is um, as well impacting on this aging uh, question uh, is as well the, the area of senescence that we are just starting to understand. So um, driving these cells into a state um, where they are uh, maybe some of them more resilient to apoptosis or more prone to apoptosis. That as well is an interesting question that will impact on that. Um, and now the start into life uh, is, is happening while these cells are in a very different state or in a very different number as they were supposed to be.
With the premature aging process, which may be occurring in these preterm infants, or in the infants that have been exposed to some sort of injury to the lung, are there ways to minimize this premature aging process? That is a very good question that I would like to address from two sides, I guess, at least. Um, so number one um, is what can you do clinically or in the clinical setting, I should say. And there, um, very good research was done by studying the preterm infant uh, itself, by studying clinical settings, um, by using animal models. And there, the, the models that were, uh, that were done in sheep, for example, in lambs, um, were very well mimicking the clinical situation and brought uh, great insight. Um, Getting to those models and diving into the results, it became clear that certain risk factors um, are driving disease, and that means early ventilation um, by using high pressure, high uh, large volumes, by um, giving the babies oxygen, and that meant uh, when the first babies survived, that meant oxygen concentrations of, of 70, 80%, that in some cases we're still using today, especially in the beginning when the lung is very uh, immature and very, uh, um, very sick. So then we have to talk about infections, um, uh, prenatal infections, postnatal infections, um, there, especially then the uroplasma infection was, um, was identified as driving bronchopulmonary dysplasia or the neonatal form of chronic lung disease. There's a variety of, of factors uh, that, or risk factors that are driving disease. And clinically, it, it became clear that one would have to find a way to avoid these, uh, these risk factors or to minimize them. Uh, in order to prevent disease. That should help, and I think we are starting to understand that should help to not interfere too much with uh, physiologic growth factor signaling, that we shouldn't interfere with that by avoiding the risk factors. We're not interfering as much with the naturally occurring growth of the lung um, uh, and the, the restructuring of the lung. So, uh, that in itself helps to prevent. Now then there is this big field of uh, experimental and very partially clinical um, work where um, we are trying to identify uh, uh, variables or uh, uh, compounds that could help to trigger the good pathways and to trigger physiologic uh, development and support this physiologic development. And um, there was just a, cl a clinical, and I mean, there have been studies before, but there was just a clinical study um, performed, um, for example, using vitamin E, uh, uh, vitamin A to push um, certain, certain pathways. Um, there is uh, a huge body of work in experimental studies where now certain compounds are triggering pathways by either suppressing, for example, TGF-beta signaling or by supporting um, other, um, uh, the vascular network and its development. So I think by supporting the, the physiologic growth factor signaling, that should actually help the lung to develop and thereby prevent disease. 
so to um, well stop uh, the stone from rolling uh, uh, downhill that maybe would would answer the question I think as far as the interference of certain pathways go that um, is a huge challenge then for all these studies so now I'm having one compound I'm trying to interfere with one pathway that has a huge implication for many other pathways so how am I able to address all these effects that then occur and there personally I believe that trying to target cells that are sitting uh, on an intersection uh, and thereby talking to different pathways and triggering those by stimulating a receptor, for example, and then having the regulatory effect of the cell itself that, that ameliorates an overdosing maybe, or uh, you know, induces other physiologic effects, that might be a clever way of how to support these growth factor signaling networks. I'm curious about this whole idea of self-repair or recovery in the lung. I know you mentioned that there are treatments in place to help preterm survival and growth. Interestingly, some infants end up surviving and have relatively normal lung health, but there are others given the same treatment that will develop severe lung disease. So does this point to different self-recovery mechanisms taking place in these two groups? Yeah, I guess that is a very important question. Um, there's different things that come to mind. Um, there, of course, has to be genetic background um, uh, to be considered. And, uh, well, there were some GWAS studies uh, done where, where we're trying to understand the genetic background that might drive um, BPD. Again, the disease is multifactorial. Um, it's happening in an overall developing organism. Um, I think that, that genetic association studies are, are hard to really uh, pinpoint down uh, certain certain genes. Maybe it's a network of genes. We have to see. I think we as well have to do the translation backwards and understand that we have identified certain risk factors uh, genetic-wise uh, in adult lung diseases that uh, found their way into clinical care, for example, the BMPR2, uh, to just name one. And I think we have to start to carry that knowledge back uh, into the developing lung and see whether or not it holds a role there too. Um, there will be different ways, um, but genetic background uh, is one of them. I think uh, twin studies will tell us more where at least to some extent the babies receive the same care then one uh, developed the disease and uh, one uh, didn't. And uh, they have, they're sharing a large amount of genetic background. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's certain hints, well, male uh, uh, infants uh, do worse with respect to development of chronic uh, lung disease. I think those uh, things have to be taken into consideration. Um, if you would address the question, why is one baby able to escape uh, and the other one isn't? And of course, immaturity per se drives lung disease. And it was beautifully published in the New England Journal um, where uh, one could see that even being premature without having uh, BPD per se 
uh, is limiting your capacity to reach your full lung volume at the age of 20 or 21. So um, I think that is a factor that has to be considered as well. If um, you were talking about postnatal care, then avoiding the risk factors um, and some unknown clinical factors where we did something right and we don't know what it is in a certain context. I think there we have to find ways to measure the adequate biomarkers to know, ah, you know, now what I'm doing is utterly wrong in this specific infant. Now what I'm doing is actually is okay. It doesn't harm or it doesn't uh, better the situation. And now what I'm doing that actually does help this baby uh, to develop its lung and, and to go from there. I think in general, one could say that we have to be cautious with everything that we implement. And the notion right now that is absolutely right to, for example, um, minimize the, the ventilation trauma, I think we have to be careful that now we're buying this uh, by paying the price uh, of having them uh, for longer term on oxygen, for example. And, uh, and if that is the case, and studies will show if that is the case in the overall population, then that is something in itself. And even by using lower concentrations, where we know that 80% oxygen induces a vast amount of apoptosis, now 40% oxygen, for example, as well are not the physiologic uh, oxygen concentration and they will do something um, to uh, those cells maybe push them into proliferation we don't know so um, by doing something good or something bad we always have to consider um, what is the price that we pay um, and and what is that doing now for the developing organ I think a short sidetrack as well to that idea that is still around to um, have, uh, to give the lung a chance to develop postnatally in an environment that is more physiologic, meaning uh, liquid ventilation, et cetera. So to restore the situation that is existent uh, prenatally. I think that idea will pop back up every now and then. Um, and, and there's still people thinking, well, there has to be a way, you know, of how we can, we can actually go back um, to that situation. Maybe we will find a way there. Um, but I think that uh, trying to identify the baby that is more likely to escape uh, or that is maybe more resilient to the things that we do and the baby that is more vulnerable and more at risk. I think to identify them by imaging strategies, by biomarker, other biomarker findings, that will be an important step. So that means we will also need to move into precision medicine or personalized care in order to understand the best treatment strategies for each neonate that comes in. Yes, absolutely. I think that, um, that uh, to my belief, uh, a good example for that is um, the treatment with steroids. If you give it to all the babies uh, in the same dose, that doesn't do anything good. Um, so we were trying to ban that from neonatology because we have seen the adverse outcome, especially the bad neurologic outcome. If you, we treat everybody to push lung development and to prevent chronic lung disease, We've seen that the 
this was not in favor of good neurologic outcome. Still, uh, the steroids are needed, and that's shown by, uh, by the way, they find their way back into neonatology and sneak back in through the back door. Um, because I don't think that to a certain extent, in a certain dose, uh, in a certain timing as well, um, and that is to me a very good example of precision and individualized uh, uh, medicine there or treatment strategies, um, they are doing something good, whatever that something and that as well needs to be defined uh, exactly is then. Um, but there we have to find ways of how to measure who is not able to produce the appropriate amounts, who is needing that extra dose of steroids, for example. And that maybe includes as well the support that we do um, with this kind of component for, uh, for blood pressure. So we can, I think we should stop to use a garden hose to just distribute this to everyone um, because we, of course, will see a huge amount of side effects um, and then stop uh, the treatment immediately. Although it did something good to uh, a, a part of the cohort. And um, there, I think uh, we need to identify uh, the, the baby that would benefit uh, and the steroids maybe are a good example for that. Then overall, from your research experience, would you say that the lung is a robust organ? Yes, so coming back to the initial question that you had of how I was um, attracted to lung research in the first place, I absolutely admire the strength and the capacity of the lung to restore, repair, face the environment every day, every second, every breath, and still be able to, you know, um, interact uh, and, and engage in, in, this constant, uh, in this constant challenge. So uh, I think, yes, the lung holds a great capacity to repair and regenerate. And I think uh, preventing uh, disease uh, shortly after birth as well means to, um, uh, well, keep uh, the, the best proportion of re for repair and regeneration so that the lung can do its thing if you want so. Um, and um, we shouldn't be exhausting that capacity early on because that for sure will be detrimental um, as we go through life and then, you know, God forbid, start smoking. Um, you know, even if we don't do that, then, uh, then we're facing all the environmental challenges that we can't escape. So, um, yes, I believe the lung is a very strong and very capable organ in that regard. Um, and uh, understanding how the start uh, is ideally and how we can um, maybe come close to that ideal start, even if we have to do some things to support life early on that are not in favor of, of uh, you know, the, uh, the full uh, blown picture of, uh, of um, a good start, but that can maybe try to be as close as we can. I think that reflects um, the, the story of, of the lung and its capacity for repair and regeneration. And that concludes part one of the Ask the Scientist podcast session with Dr. Anne Hilgendorf. Make sure to tune in to part two to hear about Anne's career and her advice for future scientists. 
Also, in part two, we get to learn more about Anne in the 10 rapid-fire questions I ask you.